The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. From Bloomberg World Headquarters in New York for our TV and radio audiences worldwide, this is a special edition of Wall Street Week. Our interview with Brian Moynihan, Chairman and CEO of Bank of America. I'm David Weston. Right now, President Biden is giving remarks. They are specifically about the sanctions imposed today on Russia coming out of the hacking and uh, interference of the election. If you want to follow that, you can follow it on your Bloomberg terminal by going to Live Go. But for right now, we want to turn to the man of the hour, and he is the Chairman and CEO of Bank of America. He is Brian Moynihan. Thank you, Brian for being back with us here at Bloomberg. So you had some really strong numbers that you reported this morning. Congratulations on those. I want to ask you, though, specifically about what it tells us about the economy more broadly and specifically about loan origination. I know that's terribly important to you at Bank of America. That was down some. I understand that was partly because people get a lot of money from the government so they don't have to borrow money. But it doesn't tell us anything about where the economy is right now. Uh, David, first uh uh, thank you for doing this again and hope you're doing well and staying safe. Uh, you know, in the end of the day, look, the economy affects a big bank like ours, affects the whole banking, the whole financial services system. And, and so the good news is, you know, this is a health care crisis. And the very good news is you're seeing the vaccine numbers go up. You're seeing the ability then to reopen without the risk that the governments can do in the states and cities and towns. And you're seeing people move around. So our spending levels for our Bank of America consumer customer base we're record in the first quarter. March is the biggest month ever. If you go back and compare to 19, they're up 20%. And so divide that by two, it's up 10% a year, which is much faster than they were growing in 15 and 16, 17. So there's a bigger number growing at a faster rate. And yet people still have a lot of the stimulus in their accounts and haven't spent it. So the world still has a group. We have a group of Americans and a group of people around the world who you know, aren't back to work yet. And we need to get that done, whose businesses can't open yet because of the nature of them. We got to get those done, but a, a big part of the economy, and I think you know, our prediction is that for the economy across over the next couple of quarters to be bigger than it was before the pandemic is is open and operating, and the consumers are spending money, and that's very good news. And then when you translate to Bank of America, what you're seeing is our deposits are way up because that money went into people's accounts and it's sitting there, but our loans are, are not as high, you know, fell because largely because people are paying us off because they have so much cash sitting around. So now the commercial side, we expect that to change the economy growing at 7%, which is what we predict will require companies to borrow to service that economy. It's just that con companies had a lot of cash too. So we look for more loan growth as the year progresses, but the good news is the, cu the consumer's in good shape. There's an unemployment issue. We gotta get that the rest of the way down to where it should be. The businesses gotta get open that couldn't be, but by and large, a big portion of the economy is up and operating very well. Bank of America has a very special viewpoint into the American economy because you have such a consumer, such a retail presence, and also the middle market. You really deal with small and medium-sized enterprises across the country. Are you seeing any pickup in the borrowing from your medium-sized companies yet? We've seen a bump along the bottom. Usage of our business banking segment, which is 50 million under revenue companies in our middle market, which is two and a half billion, we're seeing the line usage pretty flat. But the good news is it quit going down. We saw in the months during the quarter, January, February, March, it got a little stronger. Uh, our origination activity, meaning uh, you know, new clients and new deals done, is, still, is strong, bodes well for the, for the year. But, but we've got to see it come through. Um, and that goes back to those companies having a lot of cash and had to run very efficiently during the crisis because you didn't know what happened next. And, in t and, and now they're going to be need to start spending money on supplies and things to re redo their inventory. Now, the one thing I think we all have to be mindful of is we've got to get the trade. The trade is growing fast out of, you know, into the country, but the ports and things still need to get straightened out because of just the dynamics of the virus and the supply chains are still ironing out. So I think one of the things I worry about for mid-sized companies, can they get the supplies to do, do what they do? So you've heard about lumber prices or resin and things like that. I think it'll straighten out. We hope it'll straighten out. But that's the next sort of outside the healthcare. The next challenge to get the supply chains really up and oiled and greased and running through to serve that fast-growing economy. 
So if that is the consumer and the retail side, talk about the investment bank, the other side of your business here. You put up some very big numbers this morning. Can you make up for any shortfall on the retail side from what you're doing in investment banking? And what are you doing to do that? Well, it, you know, the investment banking fees year over year up for 50% or something like that, $2 billion plus, terrific. The trading group had, under Jimmy DeMar's leadership, had, had working for Tom Montag, you know, had $5 billion plus of revenue. Matthew Coder in the, in the investment banking side had a great quarter. The activity still seems to be strong in terms of the investment bank, and hopefully that bodes well, carries in the second quarter. Trading always goes, settles down as you go through the years, just the way it works, but there's, there's enough activity. So, you know, I, those made up for it. Now, the question is, now you'll see more roll through from the other sides of the house because they had to put up big provisions last year because they'll worry about credit. That's gone, and they're taking credits back, and that the deposit base grew, and we can put it to work and finally earn some money. So as the investment bank activity could stay strong because lots of M&A activity has to take place. But, you know, if the markets settle down a little bit, that's fine because they've had such a great year. The other parts will roll through and make up for it. But we made $8 billion on you know, uh, $23 billion of revenue, and that's not a bad quarter. So, Brian, when you talk about settling down, one thing that doesn't seem to be settling down yet are the SPACs, those special purpose acquisition companies. How much of your equity business, because you had a pretty robust quarter in equities, how much of those SPACs, and do you expect that to continue? I, you know, I, whether it continues or not, it's going to do some of the dynamics. And we do, we do selective ones. We're not as big in the business as other people, and, and that's fine. And, and different times, we're stronger in investment-grade issuance, and other people are stronger in, in SPACs. And that's fine with us, and we go forward. But, you know, it seems to be uh, holding on right now. Uh, let's talk about yields. Uh, the yields have been pushing up on fixed income, uh, despite the fact that this week actually we had a downturn that may be a flip, flip or not. But it's really important to Bank of America, given the way your business works, what the 10-year yield on this Treasury is and what the yield curve is, the spread between the twos and the tens. Uh, what are you projecting for the rest of the year? Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. Well, we are all projecting that, and so we we're up over uh, the 10-year got up to 170 you know, plus, and now it's back to 155 today. One of the reasons why the bank, uh, you know, companies like ours, you know, took it on the chin a little bit, but that's transient. It'll move back and forth, and there were some reasons for that happening today, I'm told. But we'll see what happens tomorrow. But the reality is, if the economic activity is picking up. And, and prices are picking up, which you've seen. Unemployment's going down. You know, the yield curve will start to normalize, and you saw that start to happen as we came in out of last year, fourth quarter into first quarter. That helps us because as the curve gets higher, it, we can make more money from the loans and other things we do. Now, what's really important to us, honestly, is, is short rates. And the question is, when the Fed raises rates, the market has it uh, pretty well deferred, and they've been clear that they want to see the inflation levels they've, uh, Chair Powell's talked about. They want to see the unemployment numbers, and they've been clear about that. The question is whether it will happen faster than they, they have in their projections, as they, even they have projections at 6% plus for GDP growth this year. And so we'll see when those rates, but that's the, that's the quicker route to success for us because we have all, we have all these no-interest-bearing deposits that instantaneously are worth more, and we don't have to do any more work. So I was going to ask you about risks, actually, because right now it looks like things are going gangbusters for Bank of America and some of the other big banks. Uh, what do you look at as risk? Is one of the risks the possibility that, in fact, the Fed may have to move sooner than the markets think? Because there are some people who are saying that they will. Well... The question is, why do they have to move? They have to move because the growth is strong and they, they're comfortable. The inflation view uh, will hold. They, you know, remember, they changed their monetary policy to do an average of inflation, and, and it, it's the first time we had you know, a chance to put that to work. So I think if they're raising rates because the economy is strong and because the, they, the uh, inflation uh, outlook, everything is, is, is higher it, it, than their targets, you know, that's, that's not a bad thing. If they're Raising because inflation and other things got out of control and wasn't temporary, that's probably not a good thing. So, you know, it really the question of raising rates is a risk in certain circumstances and an extreme benefit in others just because it means the economy is normalizing. If you talk about other risks, there's always a cybersecurity risk. There's always, you know, good deal structure and credit risk, operational risks, all the types of things you have. But the number one risk to the world still is getting this health care crisis behind us because the enthusiasm we feel in the United States and the GDP growth rates have gone from 4% to 7% across 120 days in the estimates out there are due to the path of the vaccine and the, and the, and the 
miracle of the science that the big pharma pulled off in the United States and drove through and got deployed, getting deployed in people's arms. That is what's giving the U.S. optimism. If that went in a different direction, that's what we have to be careful, and that's the risk we have to monitor more than all the other risks right now. That's the risk that we've got to pursue the vaccine path and, and get this disease behind it. The war that started last year, we've got to win it, and we've got the ammunition, and we're winning it, and we just got to pursue it and finish it off. At the same time, that war has been relatively expensive for Bank of America and for others. Your costs have gone up. You've always prided yourself on how you manage the costs at Bank of America. You've had some costs really go up. How long do you think that will continue, the war against the pandemic? And when do you think you can return to your cost of prudency, prudence level? The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Well, we told people today that we, we had about a billion and a half costs that we had to add for the first quarter for a whole series of things. Some were accelerating some costs in the future. Some were some things where we changed some compensation plans and caused an acceleration. But, you know, and we told people just to add that to the 55, 55 and a half billion dollar target we had for this year, which had been flat to last year. And that's done. But you're asking a more fundamental question. So that's, that puts us around 57 for the year. And we told people that. But the reality is, is when do the costs come back down? Well, the good news is we're seeing the headcount and the companies flatten out and start to come down again. We had to build major amount of resources for the PPP program, for the EIP distribution programs, to handle the call volumes because we had uh, branches closed and, and, and you know, people called more often, especially with all these payments from the government and stuff. So those costs now are starting to tip over. We had to raise costs in anticipation of whether the credit uh, collections and other things would persist. They went away. So you'll see that over this quarter and next quarter. But the good news is the headcount was down slightly in the first quarter, managed through attrition, and that, those costs are going. And then the, the, non the costs we did, there are good things for our teammates. We, we gave $100 a day for people to hire people, take care of the kids so they could do a great job for their customers. We funded 3.7 million days of child care for our, our teammates. That benefit as schools go back in session and summer camps open up will normalize down. And that's, that's the type of thing. But it was the thing we had to do to preserve the franchise and make it operate well. That's why we have more customers. That's why we have, we have better customer scores. And frankly, why we have better employee scores than we did before the crisis. So, Brian, that's the cost of Bank of America settling down. Let me ask about growth settling down. Right now, a lot of the projections, and I'm curious about where your projections are now. You've given them projections in the past, what the GDP growth will be this year. But will that continue? Are we seeing potentially a change in the long-term potential of the economy, or will that settle back down in a year? Well, right, that's kind of the interesting thing, David. You're asking a, a very interesting question there isn't a lot of discussion about. But if you're th sitting here... You know, after our October earnings report, for 2021, the prediction for growth would have been 4%, having come off of a, second, a third quarter last year of, of a recovery of 30%. And it was sort of 4%. But year, year 22 was sort of down in the 2-3 range. What's happened is 21 has been raised up by our team up to 7%. But the big news is they've raised 22 up to 5.5%. That is due to the additional stimulus, the pace at which people are coming out, the fact that the, the vaccine works and, and is getting in people's arms and is, is, it seemed, frankly, easier to distribute than I think people thought at the time. You know, so that's the major change. So you're putting your finger on it. This is a, if this works the way the economists who study this hard and our team is one of the best in the business, if it works the way they're saying, you're going to have another year of really outsized growth. Because remember where we were in 17 and 18 when the tax reform came through and everybody thought there'd be explosive growth? We didn't get to 3% then. And you're saying I'm going to have a 7% year on an economy which is about the same size or slightly bigger by year end, a 5.5% year, and then we'll see what follows on because people don't go out that far. That is a lot of economic activity in a huge U.S. economy. 
And, and that's going to be the interesting question if we fulfill that we're at a different, different place, frankly. It sure is. And I'm curious about that because a lot of the stimulus was not going in investment that you would normally think would increase productivity. Are the projections you're making before you get to a possible stimulus package of perhaps $2.25 trillion? Well, I mean, in the next stimulus, there's been a lot it, of in, already. Infrastructure. It, infrastructure. I, I, th I think, yeah, I, I don't think our estimates on a infrastructure stimulus, I don't think those estimates have a lot in for infrastructure, only because, A, it takes time to get that money deployed, and, B, it's still, it's still got to take form and shape. So the estimates they have are off the, you know, the last stimulus and the, and, the, and the one before that. But, you know, so I, th I think there could be room for upside. And I think that's, that, you know, if that happens and it's aimed right, it should provide the productivity and, and, and work if it's aimed in the right places. Um, the, good, the best news about the economy, honestly, is the unemployment rate keeps coming down. The new claims today came down again. It's normalizing as restaurants uh, can open fully. And, you know, those of us that live in the upper part of the United States, you know, it's been pretty cold to eat outside and things like that. So as you can actually eat outside and it's warmer, you know, the, the travel and entertainment industries, hotel bookings and our, our commercial side uh, charges our merchant business and in our consumer, you can see those up 30, 40 percent. So you're starting to see people move and travel. Those are all good things, and that will bring that employment. That's, that's, that's very good news because that means we can actually get people back to work, and then we can worry about reskilling them and giving them other jobs. We've we got to get people back to work down back down to the you know, more normal 4% unemployment, more target 4% unemployment or so. Brian, you've always prided yourself not only on being able to control costs, but also control risk, manage risk. You talk about responsible growth for Bank of America. We've had some instances in the recent past of some other banks that have raised questions about managing risk. I'm talk talking, of course, about Archegos. Uh, I understand from your chief financial officer that you weren't involved in that. But, but knowing you, when you first heard about that, did you ask Tom Montag, others to say, do we have any exposure, not just to Archegos, not just to that one, but to other similar ones? How do you know that you don't have that kind of risk? Well, that's, that's a case. But every one of these cases, whether it's operational things that happen or, or in that case, uh, a lending arrangement, uh, a, a prime brokerage type arrangement that, go, that goes awry, whatever the case is, we, we're, look, we don't think we have all the answers at all. We, we, we immediately say, could that have happened here? How do we know it didn't happen here? Let's go double check. Let's recheck all our systems, make sure, et cetera, cybersecurity attack, whatever the case is. And that, so one of the ways you have to, you know, you have to be curious. You have to ask a question. If you think, whether it's even on the competitive side, new products, new services, what's out there, what do customers need, you have to be curious, but also on the risk side. And Jeff Green, our chief risk officer, along with Tom and Jimmy DeMar and, and the team in the lending side, a fellow named Robert Schleicher and Bruce Thompson and Mick Ankrum, these guys, you know, this, this team and, and, and Cheryl Boucher and this team is just very good at understanding risk. And so sometimes the opportunity is that you, you take it, sometimes you don't. But, it, but whenever anything happens, you've got to go in and look and say, okay, let's not act like we're too smart. Let's not think we're too smart. Let's doubt. Let's have serious doubt about how good we are and go look at it and confirm that it didn't happen instead of saying it couldn't have happened because. And that's the way you run good risk management. Uh, you had an extraordinary experience at Bank of America. Others did as well, where you had to go to work from home almost overnight with an awful lot of employees. You gave a lot of support to those employees. Is it necessary to bring them all back? And if so, do you need to give more support in that process? Well, I think let's think about it a couple ways. One is our, you know, our teammates want to work, and, and we're a work-from-office company because of productivity and the culture and the in the mentoring that can take place is just is just better now maybe that changes over another couple of decades maybe if we were in this condition for a decade we'd have to adjust but you know in the end of the day you know we already saying to people you got to get you know you get your vaccines we get half of people in the office vaccinated you can open the office and we're having people trying to get through that window you know in some of the field office and stuff so we're you know we're we're letting people make their decisions we're encouraging them we're showing them lots of data we're trying to get appointments for our team and things like that so they can get back to work and then we're a work from office company now we are already in the mode of high performing work places in sort of uh, hoteling office and all the different discussion we, we think people will think about commuting differently i always tell the story that we had you know our built big buildings in midtown uh, one bryant park and we're doing a building across the street and when we ask people to move to Jersey City or something like that, they might, or Hopewell, they might think, oh, my gosh, you're sending me to Outer Mongolia or something like that. You know, the reality is they, they now have gone from home and they're much more adaptable. Well, I'll commute in the city a couple of days. I'll commute, you know, to Jersey City or I'll go to Hopewell. So we have to think about our real estate configuration and retool it. In the end of the day, 
Ten years ago, we had 130 million square feet of real estate for Bank of America. Today, we have about 70. And so we can just keep making that real estate more efficient and, and more dedicated team, better real estate for our teammates to work in, and then work with them on their personal decisions. But at the end of the day, we have found in our work from office strategies, or work from home strategies, which we've had for years, that you know, certain types of jobs and certain types of activity are better served. And we have about 20,000 people working from home before the pandemic. But it, but it has to be a certain type of job and a certain activity, and we'll we'll see how that plays out. But my big expectation is after after Labor Day, we'll you know we'll be back to you know, generally moving towards uh, being back to normal. Between now and then, it'll be partial. But the key is then you flip it for the good of cities and towns and stuff. We you know as those people who are vaccinated come back to work and go to restaurants, that'll just be good for the vibrancy of downtown. So in Charlotte. You know, I was talking to another CEO today. You know, we need to get the people commuting downtown, and and then the restaurants and downtown life can come back. Which in great cities need that. You've got a lot of real estate in Boston and in New York and in Charlotte. Are you going to have more in Florida? Because we're seeing a fair number of financial institutions are moving south. Is that on the is that on the table for Bank of America? Uh, not not really. We would, you know, our operations are pretty well sited, sited where they are. And by the way, we have a big. A lot of people in Florida and a lot of people in Jacksonville and places like that, that the big operation centers for years. So yeah, it, it, you know, we're largely sighted where we are. We don't see that. Our, our new kids, I, I think I was thinking about New York the other day. We have kids that you know, came to work at Bank of America and our, you know, our New York offices in 19, 20 and 20 and a new class coming in 21. And by the fall, the night, you know, think about the night kids that came in mid 19, they only spent, you know, six eight months in the office and then went to work from home. The 20 kids never came in, the 21 kids we're only hiring now. All those kids will be descending on New York and, and that, you know, once they, we get them vaccinated, we'll bring them in the office out in, in the fall and, you know, think about the dynamics of New York. And so having them together, having them learn from each other, having them engaged, uh, the camaraderie they develop, it's in the camaraderie they do by walking down the hall. We're, we, we need to keep critical mass in the places we are and get the people to work. Let's talk about social values. That's another thing you've prided yourself on, the way you express your social values. As I understand, you've expanded your commitment to pursue racial equality and economic opportunity from $1 billion to $1.25 billion now, various investments you're making around the country with people who really need it. You now have an invitation, a kind invitation from the Congress, both the House and the Senate, to come down and testify with your fellow CEOs. I don't know what they're going to ask you about. Maybe you know, but I think they might say, boy, you're making a lot of money. What are you doing for the people who need it the most? What are you going to tell them? Well, there's a couple things about that. So first start about, you know, what do you directly have control over? That's the people you employ and what you do with your uh, uh, first. And so we start during this crisis last year, this time we went, finally completed the move from 17 and a half to $20 an hour, or 18, I think it was, to $20 an hour and closed out in four years of what we we're going to do in five years. So we start every job in our company at $20 an hour. Our, our teammates get full benefits, um, full 401k match and everything. For the people, we, we stratify our health care benefits by compensation level. So people under 50,000 haven't had a, a change, had their, their, their premium, for lack of a better term, or self-insured, but their premium drop in half in 2011, and it's never gone up. The same price, even though there's been a 6% cost to carry. And we've done that by getting more and more people well and being able to afford it. So we reinvest that back into people. So we take great pride in that. So we employ a very diverse population from top to bottom. We hire a lot of people. We have specialized programs like our Pathways program where 10,000 people we hired in from low and moderate communities, veterans, women. Uh, we do a lot with schools and recruiting that are very broad. So that's one thing we know we can control is who we hire. Then we have our vendors. We require them to pay $15 and we've been moving all of them up to do that because we think they should be able to do it. And that's, that's, that's what we say. Then you go to you know what we do outside and that's more what we're talking about. So. After last year and the racial social justice issues after the George Floyd killing yep. and the other killings and, and what happened, you know, we basically made a billion dollar commitment. We did three things. We denounced racism. Second, we, we, we gave a foundational grant to the Smithsonian Institute to start a courageous conversation platform with Lonnie Bunch at the Smithsonian across African Americans, Na Native Americans, Hispanics and Asian Americans across all their platforms. Then we put a billion dollar program together along the pillars of jobs, health, small business, small business entrepreneurship and housing. And we have now deployed about 350 million of that. As we move through the year, that money went to the uh, minority deposit institutions. We've we done about 14 of those. 
to the things called the CDFIs. We kept right. our levels up. That's not even part of the billion dollars that's above. We have 1.7 billion with them. We put money right. into 21 uh, colleges and community colleges to help HBCU colleges, four-year people, helping to get jobs with big companies like ours, and then community colleges, skill set, an entrepreneurship center with, in Atlanta with the Black Executive Alliance and, and Morehouse right. and Spelman. And then we did uh, 25 million masks delivered to community centers yeah. and to help pe keep people safe. Yeah. Then we did 61 private equity funds coming yeah. up from all our market presidents, right. bringing them to us, and that's all done. Yeah. And so now, then we have the, the Asian uh, American, uh, people of Asian yeah. descent, Pacific Island descent issues come up, and we said, look, we, we've got to dedicate even more and exp expand the dollar amount of this program and also make it clear that we are covering those yeah. colleagues and teammates in society, and we've done that for a billion and a quarter. Yeah, it sounds like you've got your testimony pretty well written for you already, just as soon as you got the invitation. I want to ask one question about crypto, because it's come up quite a bit. I mean, you and I have talked before about Bitcoin. You always say it's not Bitcoin, it's blockchain, it's distributed ledger. At the same time, we had the chairman of the Fed uh, talk to us uh, just this week and say, you know, it's not cryptocurrency, it's crypto assets that you speculate about. How do you see the dynamic from Bitcoin on the one hand to cryptocurrency of any sort of the other to perhaps a central bank digital currency? Where is this going? Well, I think there are multiple facets. Obviously, it's an asset people are investing in. You know, our clients are asking us, can we invest in this asset and you know, put it in our accounts and look at it? And that's, those are issues we have to, to consider. And you're seeing you know, some of our colleagues uh, start to do formal custody, and you've seen those announcements and things like that, which will enable us to do some things. And so that, that's the investment side, and that's for large institutions and you know, affluent investors and, and people looking at it. Then you have the transactional side, and the question of moving money digitally is not new. More than, I think, probably 55, 60% of our consumer money moved digitally this last quarter, and on the commercial side, it's probably 97%. It all moves digitally, very little paper uh, movement. So the idea of moving money digitally, uh, think about uh, um, Zelle and the volumes going through that now and the number of users, not only in our company, but in the industry total, that's not a new concept. Then the question is, you know, an anonymous currency or currency that doesn't have attribution, that's a different question. And I think uh, uh, you've heard uh, Chair Powell and, and Secretary of uh, Treasuries in the past reflect on that. That's a different question. A central bank, central bank digital currency, you know, is just, we already, in anyway, we already have that. We have a bunch of accounts with them. They're ones and zeros. We know where they are. There's a huge amount of money represented by it. So the idea of making it available more, more granular, I think we'll see what they decide to do and we'll react to it. But the reality is we make money movement digitally is the dominant way money moves in our franchise today. and It will be in the future. Brian, just one quick one here at the end, if you can. Was it hard to decide to sign on to that level about the Georgia voting law? Because you signed with a lot of other companies protesting what's going on. Well, yeah, we'd made a statement a few weeks ago, and then, and then we were approached to sign along with all those other companies about the basic fundamental principle of, of, of voting and the right to vote. Now, uh, you know, David, as, as you watch this play out, you know, I, I look back in history yeah. and, and, you know, some of the Brian, major, I'm so sorry. Thank major, you so much. For our TV and radio audiences, this is Bloomberg. Thank you to Brian Moynihan, CEO of Bank of America. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hi, this is Rick Davis uh, with uh, Bloomberg News, and uh, we want to pick up where uh, David Weston uh, just finished a very expansive interview with Brian Moynihan, uh, the CEO of Bank of America. His interview was uh, very comprehensive. It touched on the bank's success uh, in the last quarter, and, uh, and uh, uh, CEO Moynihan talked a lot, quite a bit, about um, you know the uh, the economy and its rebound. Uh, he talked about a seven percent growth rate uh, this year and a continuing uh, uh, momentum behind that kind of growth uh, into five percent next year. So he was very optimistic and 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 confident that uh, that the co the economy is on the rebound. He said there's obviously some 
sectors of the economy that that need to uh, that need to improve. He actually talked quite a bit about uh, the supply chain and how important it is that that picks up based on the amount of trade that's going on right now to get those ports back in and the supply chain moving so that it can keep up with an economy that's that's running ahead of it right now. Uh, and I, and I think there was some really interesting conversations about, you know, the Bank of America and the business that they're in, uh, whether or not people were going to be coming back to work right away. He talked about maybe after Labor Day, really encouraged to get people back to work that, you know, even though they they like the the, the amount of work that they have for uh, out of at home workers, uh, they, they love the concept of people being in the office together. And so. Uh, I think that he had uh, a lot of optimism that, you know, after Labor Day, maybe they could get a lot of their workforce together and, and back into the office. Uh, and the idea behind that is that that actually helps the economy in these cities by returning the uh, workers to uh, the offices. They then go to the shops and the restaurants. And, and these are areas that have been especially hurt in cities like New York uh, because of the COVID uh, uh, situation. I also think uh, it's uh, it's important to note that uh, uh, David got into some of the more softer political issues and you know, talked about, you know, what's Congress looking at as far as the big banks? If you're testifying in Congress right now, what would you be talking about? And he really honed in on these employees again, and he defended the, the work they've done to increase minimum wage, uh, talked about, uh, I thought, really telling. Uh, they dropped health care premiums in half in 2011 and never let them go back up again. Uh, a really incredible uh, thing that you wouldn't really understand uh, about this company if not for an interview like David's uh, with the CEO. Uh, and then uh, a little bit of a conversation just getting started before the end of the interview uh, around social justice issues and some of the hot political issues these days around things like uh, voting rights in Georgia. So uh, we, we appreciate that, uh, that, that, that interview. And I want to pick up uh, with uh, with an error that I think is important uh, to note on this is in the uh, relatively new uh, unemployment news uh, that's just come on. But uh, I first want to bring in, uh, along with uh, uh, me, my uh, fellow Bloomberg contributor, Jeannie Sean Zeno. And also joining us right now is Congressman John Germandy, uh Democratic congressman from California's 3rd District. Uh, congressman, welcome to the show. Delighted to be with you. I was try trying to catch up on what you were talking about just a moment ago, and I'm going, what country company was that? I missed that opening piece of it. Oh, absolutely. It's Bank of America. Uh, David Weston just had a uh, really far-reaching interview with Brian Moynihan, the CEO. And uh, not only did we learn a lot about the economy, uh, but we also learned quite a bit uh, about how he operates the bank. And, and I wonder if we could... Uh, uh, talk a little bit about uh, something that connects with what uh, Brian Moynihan was talking about as far as the robust mm -hmm. uh, picture of the economy about unemployment. We saw some unemployment news today, uh, a plunge in uh, weekly jobless claims uh, celebrated by President o uh, Biden, who spoke to reporters at the White House today. And uh, we've got sound on that. Uh, sure. We still have a long way to go. We're 8 million jobs down from what it was more than... Uh, before the pandemic began, but America's coming back. So, Congressman, I mean, uh, like what he said, uh, sure, uh, we are down from 18.2 uh, million unemployed to 16.9. 16.9 still a lot of unemployed, uh, but there does seem to be positivity in the numbers. Uh, what's your outlook on that, and is there anything happening in Congress today to try and improve that number? Well, there's several things going on, one of which is extraordinarily important for a major part of our workforce, which, uh, which is equal pay for equal work. Uh, this is a major problem across our nation where women are paid substantially less than men when they do exactly the same work. We just uh, passed that off the House floor not more than uh, 20 minutes ago. So that'll fit into this. Uh, and it's a really important thing because we need to get women back into the workforce. The very biggest part of that unemployment where women that have left the workforce, some of them, unfortunately, permanently. But beyond that, we do have uh, the effects of the uh, rescue bill are just now working their way into the economy. Uh, that uh, little less than $2 trillion hasn't yet been in the pockets of Americans or in the various or, uh, organizations uh, to which it is intended to go. So that's out there. And as that works its way into the economy, that'll be a very substantial boost and uh, attack on the covid uh, pandemic. So a lot of that money is going to go into uh, dealing with the pandemic and related issues. Uh, there's a big piece of it for the uh, 
restaurants uh, that you were talking about just a moment ago to keep to get them back online uh, as the economy comes on they'll be able to provide the services now that's uh, that is not yet fully into the economy although many of those $1400 checks have been delivered but not yet spent the other piece of it uh, is the big infrastructure bill that we're working on and uh, while a big, big package, uh, nobody knows exactly where it is because it isn't exactly anywhere. But all of the elements in that package are underway here in the uh, House of Representatives on the tech, on the uh, Transportation Infrastructure Committee. We've had several hearings already. We're building off a major bill that we passed last fall that didn't become law that got hung up in the Senate. Uh, and so uh, we're ready to go with a major part of that. And that's going to be really important. Uh, I know there's some pushback from our Republican friends, but uh, I think they're just just wrong. They're trying to define infrastructure as being concrete and steel. And uh, I don't know, in my area, infrastructure is uh, rural broadband so our farmers can become efficient. Yeah, thank you, Congressman. I think that's a really good point. And if I could pick up on that and bring Jeannie into the conversation. Jeannie, one of the things that Brian Moynihan, the CEO of uh, Bank of America, who just did the interview with our David Weston, talked about was that the stimulus that's lifting the economy right now doesn't include infrastructure. And so you got a 7% growth rate that's targeted for this year without a infrastructure bill uh, that the Congressman was just talking about. Is that going to take some of the steam out of the administration's efforts to get the, the infrastructure bill, especially through the Senate? Well, that is exactly what I was thinking. I mean, one of the things, and I would love to ask the congressman about this, that we have gotten some fairly good job numbers. And um, we do hear from Republicans, we talked to some of them on this show, that with these job numbers, and as you mentioned, Congressman, the COVID relief money not being fully into the economy yet, is it too much to try to infuse another $2.2 trillion in this next jobs bill? Well, first of all, the rescue bill is designed to be now, not tomorrow, now, uh, to deal with the pandemic, to get kids back in school, so on and so forth. Uh, that's here and now. The infrastructure bill is a 10-year is a process. Uh, most of that will be over a five-year period. So uh, you're not going to dump another $2 trillion in the next six months to a year. Uh, it'll be over a period of time. And the, uh, the issue of it's not just employment here. It's long-term employment and is long-term competitiveness. Uh, we simply know that we are ranked 13th in the world on our infrastructure, and that's just, that's just the transportation, water, sanitation infrastructure. But if you go to the other pieces of infrastructure that are the modern infrastructure, the communication infrastructure, the, the infrastructure of, uh, of, of our education and our research facilities, those things are critically important. If we're going to have a competitive economy up against China. We're going to have to have the best education system in the world. We're going to have to have the best research in the world. We're going to have to make things that come out of that research. Some of it is uh, biopharmaceutical, bioenergy, uh, and, uh, and we're going to have to also make sure that we are able to deal with climate change. The infrastructure package is going to be strongly oriented to the reality of climate change and the necessity of a different energy system and a different transportation system. All of those is the future, and we've got to do it if we're going to be competitive. Now, if you don't care about being competitive, you want to be number 13, well, we don't need to do infrastructure. That's not where I am. I don't think that's where Americans are. Congressman, I wonder if we could pick up on that, because uh, your, your point about climate has been a hot topic lately. Of course, we've heard a lot in recent uh, weeks from the administration about pressuring China to do more on climate. But we heard today uh, sort of switching over to some of the news around Russia that uh, uh, the president is looking at putting together a summer summit with Vladimir Putin and the topic being climate. And we, we don't hear climate as it relates to Russia very often. And I'm, I'm as curious what you think the issues are that are going to be uh, present in that kind of a summit. Well, it's certainly a, an important piece of it. Russia, while it's uh, significantly smaller than uh, Germany and the United States in their output, they are essentially a major source and user of carbon fuels. Uh, and therefore, uh, it's a big, big issue for Russia if uh, Europe moves away from uh, carbon fuels uh, and America moves away from carbon fuels. The What's the future of, of the Russian economy, which is heavily dependent on uh, on those 
uh, particular fuels. So, uh, yes, there's much to talk about. And like uh, you know, like the rest of us, they also are a producer of uh, carbon emissions. It's also, if that's the subject matter, good, because uh, we have to open a dialogue with, uh, with Russia. We've got a serious problem right now. I spent most of the morning here in the Armed Services Committee uh, with a, a briefing about Russia and uh, Ukraine and Russia and Europe. Uh, so there's a serious military uh, national sec- uh, security issue here with Russia. So, yeah, let's talk. What I really, really like today is that the president slammed Russia uh, with, their, with the sanctions. And that's absolutely necessary. Long time coming. Uh, and uh, he did it because of their involvement in our election, because of their uh, cyber hacking and uh, other uh, misdeeds that Russia's engaged in uh, willy-nilly for the last four years. So it's over. And Putin uh, knows that this, this president is going to push back. Well, so, Congressman. Yeah, talk to him, but, keep, uh, but be aware. Congressman, I, I, I really want to pick on that, pick up on that when we uh, come back out of the break. And uh, so what I'd like to do is uh, continue our conversation related to Russia. Uh, uh, and uh, this is uh, Rick Davis, and we're on Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Rick Davis, along with my fellow Bloomberg politics contributor, Jeannie Sean Zeno. And we still have with us Congressman John Jaramondi, the Democratic congressman from California's third CD. We were just talking about some of the things that were announced today out of the Biden administration on sanctions on Russia. And Congressman, you were just giving us a pretty tough line. Every day's a good day when you can attack Russia. I, I want you to maybe elaborate on that a little bit, uh, specifically on the fact that uh, the one thing left off of this plate of sanctions was uh, talk about the controversial Nord Stream 2 pipeline between Russia and Germany, uh, very sensitive between U.S. and Germany uh, on that. And uh, yet it wasn't mentioned as a, a reason to uh, to uh, uh, sanction the Russians. And uh, why was that left off? Well, you just said why. Uh, it's a very controversial uh, issue. It's one in which uh, Germany believes that they need a uh, supply of uh, natural gas uh, and that their economy needs it as they move away from uh, coal and and, and uh, nuclear power. So, uh, and I think it's very wise for the president not to uh, to use a sanction against Russia that is actually going to whack Germany. Uh, this needs to be worked out. I've said for many, many days that uh, we might very well cut a deal with Germany to export our natural gas, uh, LNG, to Germany uh, in uh, as if that pipeline is not built. We can work out some sort of a deal, good for us, good for them, and uh, bad for Russia. Not a not a bad solution. Congressman Garamondi, I, I, I know that there were other things that the president uh, mentioned uh, uh, on his official announcement against uh, Russia uh, for interfering in American elections, hacking American government institutions, uh, an episode last year that has since been dubbed Solar Winds. Uh, and uh, I've got sound on what the president was talking about today. I told him that we would shortly be responding in a measured and a proportionate way because we had concluded that they had interfered in the election and solar winds was totally out of the uh, inappropriate. Additionally, uh, there were specific uh, announcements around these uh, uh, in, uh, around these sanctions today, and uh, I've also got sound on the president's mentioning uh, what those were. I've approved several steps, including expulsion of several Russian officials as a consequence of their actions. 
So, Jeannie, I wonder if we could pick up on this. Um, obviously, it was kind of a mixed bag, as uh, as Congressman Garamundi just mentioned. Um, there were some things like the uh, Nord Stream 2 that was left off. There was positive things about trying to have a, a, uh, a summit this summer to talk about climate. But there were some very tough things. Uh, if you wanted to have a bad day for Russia, this was it. Uh, how do you think the administration's doing as far as rolling out this new perspective toward Russia? You know, I, I think it's still early. I think they're never going to make everybody happy. We heard some criticism from some people that they didn't go far enough with these sanctions. And Nord Stream 2 was just one example of that. There's also a school of thought that the United States, well before the Biden administration, has been a little sanction happy, um, sanctioning people and co- countries and individuals for all kinds of things. But the effect of that is not always as as, as impactful as we might like. And that's what I actually wanted to ask representatives Um, As you look at the sanctions put out today, um, do you think there is a danger that the United States isn't going to have the impact on Russia and the economy that it needs to have? And of course, announcing the potential summit, we also need to work with Russia on other things. So how do you balance those two equations? You just did. Uh, They are balanced. Uh, First of all, let's recognize that the, the general attitude towards Russia in the previous four years was hands-off. Uh, you know, I don't want to get into uh, Trump and all uh, all of Russia, but uh, we ended that administration wondering why why was he so uh, willing to uh, to go along with Putin? Uh, we, don't, we may never know that answer, but that was, in fact, what was happening. And here, right out of the uh, first three months, uh, the president has come out with uh, very specific sanctions against very specific things that Russia has done. Uh, and uh, and they're tough sanctions, and, and they're meaningful. And it's particularly important uh, in ter- in view of what Russia is doing in the uh, uh, the bomb- Donbass uh, Ukraine uh, Russia border. There's a major military buildup there, uh, and it is a significant concern to the United States, and even more so to uh, European countries. And so the timing of this sanctions. Uh, is important. It's a clear message to Putin that uh, there's a new president and he has a different attitude about Russia. Uh, it'll play itself out over time. Nord Stream is uh, is a major issue. Uh, it is not yet resolved. It's not yet completed. Uh, and uh, it's going to take some very serious negotiations, particularly with Germany. Uh, this is really, a, for the United States, this is an issue with Germany. Uh, and of course, the effect would be to deny Russia a market. Uh, however, there are other ways to deny Russia a market, and that has to do with the South Stream. These are uh, uh, new pipelines that uh, come out of the Caspian Sea area and, and go through uh, Turkey into uh, southern Europe. So those are uh, other other ways of uh, denying Russia uh, access to the European market. All of those are important uh, going forward. So actually, I'm very, very pleased that, that this happened today because this uh, these sanctions uh, tie in very, very well with what Russia's uh, the Russian military buildup uh, in the Ukraine area that, uh, hey, guys, we're aware of what you're doing and uh, your, uh, your free ride in Washington is over. Congressman Garamundi, I, I was wondering if we could sort of move to another hot spot in the uh, world, Afghanistan. Um, one of the things that candidate Joe Biden talked a lot about in criticism of uh, the Trump administration were uh, the apparent bounties that Russians were were paying to uh, uh, to our opponents in Afghanistan to go after our troops. And I know as uh, a member of the uh, House Armed Services Committee, your highest priority is to protect the well-being of our service personnel, and uh, and thank you for that. Um, but uh, should we do more uh, on on this issue as it relates to Russia? It seems to me this is one that has slipped through the cracks. Uh, actually, no. It's one of the uh, reasons for the sanctions. It was it was Great. spelled out as one of the reasons for the sanctions. Um, it certainly uh, there was no response from the previous uh, president about this issue. Uh, and uh, it, it raises enormous questions and dangers for American servicemen and other uh, American officials uh, in uh, Afghanistan. Uh, now, we also know that yesterday the president made a major uh, announcement about Afghanistan, uh, in this case following uh, along where President Trump had uh, 
had already staked out the ground, and that is American troops are leaving. Now, the president moved it back six months so that the uh, departure is coordinated with our NATO allies, which is, yeah, that should have been thought about by the previous president, but but wasn't. Uh, you can't just deal with these issues with the tweet. It is complex. Uh, it's complex political uh, amongst our allies, NATO allies, who have 7,000 troops. We have some 2,500. So uh, anyway, that uh, president's announcement yesterday that uh, we are, after 20 years, no later than uh, 9-11, 2021, uh, the American troops will be out of Afghanistan. Uh, that does leave some major questions. And in answer to the major questions, the president said, uh, uh, while our troops are leaving, uh, the American interest in Afghanistan is not quitting. Uh, we'll continue to provide uh, economic aid. We'll continue to provide uh, other kinds of support uh, to the government and continue to work to uh, find a, a reasonable settlement between the warring parties. You know, Congressman, I think that's a really good point. Um, uh, we saw today a uh, uh, arrival of Secretary of State Anthony Blinken to Afghanistan to kind of reinforce the day after that presidential announcement you mentioned uh, about ending the America's longest war uh, to uh, reinforce what we think is the the actual terms and conditions of which we would see a Taliban involved in a political process. Jeannie, do you think that uh, the administration can use its status now, especially with our allies, to try and create a peaceful process in Afghanistan? You, you know, I, I hope they I hope they are able. It has been, as the congressman was just talking about, 20 long years, $2 trillion, countless lives in the American and the Afghan side. So I hope they are able. And, I, and there's nobody probably better prepared or smarter at doing that with our allies than, than our current secretary. So I think there is reason to be optimistic on that. Thank you, Jeannie. Probably, Go ahead, Congressman. Probably the best place to be. We need to be optimistic. It's been 20 years of, uh, of a of a very, very long uh, struggle, very long uh, and, and deadly, uh, deadly for us, deadly for Afgan Afghanistan. One of the things that, that must be considered uh, when, whenever you talk about Afghanistan, uh, America and NATO, the Europeans and the, and the United States, we're not the neighbors. The neighbors are a very troublesome bunch, uh, from China to Russia to uh, India and uh, Iran and uh, uh, Pakistan. Pakistan, yep. Uh, all of them, all of them have a uh, serious interest and a serious Co effect. Congressman John Garamundi, I want to thank you for being here. We've run out of time, but this was a fantastic uh, moment that you gave us to talk about the foreign policy and domestic activity in this administration. So thank you very much. Uh, it's uh, Rick Davis, and uh, this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.